Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you're n- new with us, my name is Ed, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we're so glad you're here today. A bunch of our women are away on a women's retreat, so we're glad you're here. Hope they're having a good time. My wife is uh, among them, so I've been batching it this weekend. We're working our way through uh, the Old Testament book of Exodus, and we're doing it in installments. This is our third installment, fifth week in our third installment. And we're at the point right now in the story of the book of Exodus, if you know that story from the Old Testament, where we're covering one of the greatest stories ever told. It is the epic um, adventure of the, the ancient Israelites being literally rescued, saved from the hand of the mighty Egyptian army by the hand of our mighty God. Now, what we could do with this story is, you know, tell this story and then uh, kind of remind one another, our God is great. And that would be awesome. And so consider yourself having been reminded, our God is great. Uh, That's certainly what this story communicates. But instead of just doing that, uh, two weeks ago, we we did kind of a first part of this, and we're going to do a second part today. Let's use this story to look at our experience of God. What happens to us when we experience God? And in fact, you know, later in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, they use this story kind of that way. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to ask and try to answer an important question for us um, as we look at our experience with God in light of using this kind of like a blueprint. What does it tell us about experiences with God in general? So let me open us in prayer. Father, um, we want to break open your word this morning and hear from you. Uh, Massage your truth into our hearts. We don't believe that any of us are here today by accident. You have drawn us today for your message, for your reminder, or maybe for a a new word of life. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've been reading lately the biography of Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703. He died prematurely in 1758. He was a brilliant theologian and a pastor and an author. He ended his career as the president of Princeton Seminary, Princeton University. Along the way, uh, Edwards was the principal voice for and, and chief advocate and primary preacher in the, America's first Great Awakening. So the Great Awakening was a, a powerful uh, religious movement. Many were converted to uh, faith, especially in the New England states of Connecticut and Massachusetts, but also throughout New England and down into the southern states as well. Dramatic growth in churches, and there was a tremendous growth in the influence of the church in the United States. But problems and excesses, let's say, with the awakening movement abounded, and eventually um, the clergy all over the United States kind of devolved into almost religious parties. They were called the old light, I mean the names for them, they were called the old light, or these were the people who were against the excesses and against the revival movement. And the new light, people who, um, the the chief among them was Jonathan Edwards, who defended 
the, the, the awakening and the movement of God's spirit throughout churches, but they also spoke against the excesses. And a central question that came out of this controversy was, how do we know if spiritual activity is genuine and real? Both, both at large, in churches, and in individual lives, including in our own life. How do we know if spiritual activity is real? Some of you have come from, uh, you grew up in other countries, and, and I've, I've had conversations with many of you. This thing's driving me crazy. Hold on. I've had conversations with many of you who have talked about things. For example, many examples, but for example, uh, you have said, you know, uh, religion in the United States is not ex as expressive as it was in, in my country, and I miss that. So is it, you know, are, is something wrong with American Christians? How do we know if our religious experience is real, if it's genuine? This is an ancient question. If you do a word search for the word no, in the New Testament book of 1 John, you'll find that it appears 32 times. And many of those are directed at this question. For example, in 1 John 2, 3 says, this isn't on the screen, but listen, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. So throughout this book, he's given us kind of assurances how we know we know. How do, how do we know that our experience was a genuine one, a real one? What does that mean? How, how do we know if we know him? How do we, how do we assess spiritual activity in ourselves and others around us in the larger context of our church and society at large? All right, as I said, two weeks ago here at Gateway, we started talking about this most epic of all Old Testament stories. In fact, this story covers the most epic event in human history other than the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the story of the descendants of Israel being saved from Egyptians by God. It happened, you know, the Red Sea split, the whole thing. It happened sometime probably in the middle of the 13th century BC. That's 1,500 years ago. We also talked about how that event became a model for later generations for how God moves in human affairs. So much of the way Old Testament saints and the first followers of Jesus understood their experience with God was colored by this story and what they read here. Think about it this way. If you are a second or third generation American, think of how much your sense of who you are is, is affected, is colored by, is influenced by the experience of your parents and grandparents coming here to the U.S. You're not always conscious of it, but it affects you constantly. In many cases, the details of their story still resound in your family. Even more so, the details of this story color our understanding of our experience with God. This is what our God is capable of, saints have said through the generations. This is how our God feels about his people. This is the, the extent that God will go to to deliver his people. And, and this is what deliverance looks like. So two weeks ago, we looked at the story and we asked and tried to answer, how does salvation happen? We heard, you've heard that kind of language before, right? Have you been saved? Well, what does that mean? And as a way of starting to ask and answer what that means, we asked, how does it happen? And in answer, we looked at this story and we realized we could answer in one, one sentence. When we are saved, we are saved when the mighty hand of God acts graciously on our behalf. 
when the mighty hand of God acts graciously on our behalf. God saves us. It's his activity. That's how it happens. That's what we said two weeks ago. So that brings us to today and our second critical question about our experience with God. What is the result of salvation? What happens when we're saved? And this helps us get at the whole idea of how we know if it has happened to us. So what happens when we are saved? And the answer spills out of this passage, and it's, it really covers three things, and we'll, we can do this in one sentence. When we are saved, God is glorified, we are delivered from our enemy, and we put our trust in him. God is glorified, we are delivered from our enemy, and we put our trust in him. So now I'm going to read Exodus 14, 1 through 4. And this is just the opening paragraph of this story. We read more of it two weeks ago. We won't cover it all today. But you know the story. Exodus 14, 1 through 4, this is the introduction. And I especially want you to pay attention to what God says about glorifying himself. So let's, uh, let's read Exodus 14. Let's go old school. Stand out of reverence for God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, turn back and encamp near pi Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea. They are encamped by the sea. They are directly opposite Baal Zephon. And Pharaoh will think, oh, the Israelites are wandering around in the land, confusion, hemmed in by the desert. Look at this. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. All right, you can be seated. I will gain glory for myself, God said, and he does. The Egyptians will eventually, later in the story, say in fear, we got to stop this. The Lord is fighting for Israel. And Moses will eventually write books about what God has done. When we are saved, we give glory to God. Can you see how God set Pharaoh up here? God intentionally led Pharaoh to believe that the Israelites were confused, didn't know where they were going. Now, at this point, they are still well within the boundaries of Egypt, and, and there would have been certainly spies surveying their movements. Hey, Pharaoh, they were heading east and gently north. Now they've turned due south. They're going to be hemmed in by the sea. I don't think they have any idea where they're going. So in the next paragraph, we read that the Egyptians had already been lamenting their decision to let the slaves go. So Pharaoh, hearing that this slave band is quite confused, and he's probably not surprised, this, the text tells us that he marshaled 600 of his best chariots and chariot drivers and some more chariots. Now look, at this point in history, chariots were the best war technology by far. And a chariot force of maybe 1,000 chariots well, there was no army in the ancient Near East that could stand against that, but a barely organized mob of just released slaves, not even close. So if you could choose, you would want to be on the side of the chariots, always, because they're going to win. And this was clear to the Israelite mob. What have you done to us? Remember that from two weeks ago? That, that they grumbled. We would have been better off if you'd left us in Egypt, which is what we asked. Of course, they did not ask that. Because you want to be on the side of the chariots, unless the ground is wet. And under those conditions, chariots are worthless. Maybe worse, 
the, the, the charioteers are sitting ducks. It's impossible to miss the degree to which God is controlling the agenda throughout this entire story. Back at the end of chapter 13, this is chapter 14, which covers the actual account. Back at the end of chapter 13, we read this. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country. That would have been right next to the Mediterranean Sea, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. God is setting the agenda. Then in, we just read chapter 14, verse 4, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Then down in verse 19, we read about the cloud of God's presence coming between the slaves and the mighty Egyptian fighting force, a thick cloud that made it impossible for the Egyptians to actually intercept the, the Israelite slaves. Then the next day, verse 21 tells us that the Lord sent a strong east wind to open up the sea so the Israelites could walk through on dry ground. God was setting the agenda throughout this whole saga. Then he told Moses to instruct the Israelites to march through the opening in the sea, knowing that the Egyptians would follow, and they did. And then the Lord caused the sea to return to his place, swallowed up the mighty Egyptian army. God was controlling the agenda. And the agenda was to show the world who he is and to save his people. And this is the point, by the way. And Moses was becoming increasingly aware of that fact. Oh, this is all you, God. You're doing this. In fact, he wrote a song about it and recorded it for us in chapter 15 of Exodus. It begins like this. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver. He has hurled into the sea. I get it now. God, you're doing this. You're mighty. Oh, you deliver us. This is what it looks like. That's what happens to us. When we are saved, we begin to see the world through this lens. Oh, God, you're doing this. This is what you're doing for me. Our eyes are open. We start to see how reality works. We see that this is God's world. And through our actions, through what we say to others, God is made larger. God is glorified. We can't help ourselves. We see his fingerprints everywhere. This is a part of what happens when we say God is glorified. So when we hear one another talk about God in our lives and, and he looms larger and larger, that is evidence that God is saving us. When we hear people talk about church and I need to get back to church or we hear people talk about religion or we hear people talk about spirituality. That's not yet genuinely God having captured that soul because when we are saved, and again, the, the Bible ransacks the language looking for, looking for words powerful enough to describe our experience with God. Saved, when we're saved, we give him glory. It becomes about him. Our eyes are opened. Pause for dramatic effect, I mean, and for a little side note. I have to tell you, this whole idea of God being glorified has bothered me at times. Sorry. Mainly because God himself brings it up repeatedly. Glorify me. Praise me, etc. 
You may have had this thought as well, but sometimes to me it has sounded like God is this giant ego in the sky that needs to be constantly stroked. I love C.S. Lewis's explanation of this. He gave a great illustration of us being outside having a, a, a picnic with a perfect meal on an absolutely perfect, glorious day. And at some point, someone on the picnic, on, on the picnic is going to say, what a day this is. And Lewis observed that that statement doesn't satisfy the ego of the day. In, the, in fact, that statement satisfies us. It completes our enjoyment of the day. We can't help but say it. In the same way, Lewis said, when we glorify God, we're not satisfying his ego. We're stating the facts and we're completing our own enjoyment of him. God, this is you. I, oh, I see now. The first thing that happens when we, are, when we are saved is God is shown to be our Savior. He gets the glory. Oh, God, you did this. During the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards discovered to his dismay that sometimes when people had dramatic encounters in, in a church service, for example, a dramatic emotional encounter, and, and they did throughout the Great Awakening, very dramatic uh, experiences. Some of you who have, you'll be familiar with this, some of you who have come from Pentecostal settings, but in the first Great Awakening, these were pretty dry and dusty Protestant churches, and people would occasionally get slain in the spirit in their services. They'd just fall out. But uh, Edwards noticed that, couldn't help but notice, as did everyone, sometimes those encounters did not represent genuine salvation experiences. Sometimes they were just emotional experiences. Sometimes people got caught up in their own emotions. But when we are saved, we get caught up in God, not in ourselves, not in our own experience. We become increasingly aware of him and how much he has done and is doing around us. It may be a, it may be a profoundly emotional experience for us. It, it, it was for many of us. But that's not the determining factor in the genuineness of it. So the absence of emotion for you does not mean your experience with God was not or is not real. When we are saved, God is glorified. That's the clearest evidence of the genuineness of our experience with God. And let's face it, for some of you, uh, you are so cut off from your emotions, it's highly unlikely it'll be a, a, an extremely emotional experience for you. But when we are saved, we will give glory to God. Secondly, when we are saved, we are delivered from our enemies. Put that, yeah, thank you, Thomas. If we rewind this Exodus story back just a few weeks for them in their story, we realize this band of slaves could not have imagined what was recorded for us in verse 30 of this chapter 14. At the very end of this chapter, listen to this. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. They were rescued completely. And just a few weeks earlier, that scene would have been utterly unimaginable. Actually, this is the essence of, of the word salvation means, right? It, it, we are delivered from our trial or from our enemy. And this was a consistently held belief by the faithful, and it still is. 
that our God delivers. He is our Savior. And as I said throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, this story, the, the story of the Exodus, is used as the, as the classic illustration of that truth. This is, this is the degree to which God will go to, to save us. This is how powerful his salvation is. This is what our God can do. It means deliverance from our enemies, no matter how mighty they are. Let me repeat. When we are genuinely saved, first of all, God is glorified in our own hearts and minds and to those around us through what we say and do. And secondly, when we are saved, we are delivered from our enemies. But this second part, this very obvious understanding of salvation, also got God's people into trouble over the centuries. Basically, because this idea often caused them to focus on the wrong thing. The idea that God saves us from our enemies often caused God's people to focus on the wrong thing. In every era throughout their history, they got distracted by their immediate difficulties and their present circumstances. Oh God, save us from the Egyptians. Oh God, save us from the Philistines. Oh God, save us from the Assyrians. Oh God, save us from the Babylonians, etc., etc. Oh God, save us from our immediate trouble. They got distracted by what was right in front of them, by their great political enemy, or, or by their current everyday trial. They would convince themselves that God's salvation always meant the deliverance from this immediate trouble. If that deliverance came, then God came through for them. If that deliverance did not come, then where are you, God? Now, this is understandable. At a certain point, well, this is understandable. But at a certain point, you would think they might be able to take a larger view. At a certain point, you would think they would learn their lesson. Hey, when we trust God, things go well eventually. There are trials, but even our worst circumstances eventually unwind in ways that produce our deliverance. And he's glorified, and our trust increases. But when we fret and worry, it doesn't go well. When we put our trust in other things, it doesn't go well. Eventually, we end up in deeper trouble and our worry increases. Huh, maybe we should put our trust in God. You would think they would have arrived at that kind of perspective. You would think they would eventually realize that God was after bigger trials, bigger troubles than sometimes what was immediately in front of them. God wanted to free them from their real enemies, their own sin, their fears, and the power of death itself to separate them from their God. God wanted to save them from that. Now, obviously, we're all going to die. That much is clear. But those of us who put our trust in him, there is life with God after we die, eternal and blissful. That's that's where God's salvation is ultimately taking us. But that perspective never seemed to take hold for these ancient Israelites. And really, as I, I read the book of Exodus, that surprises me. Given all that God showed them, that surprises me. Every time they face trouble, it's like they went back to square one. And we'll see that in, in, in the next couple of weeks. And that surprises me until I reflect on my own life. And then I recognize I can't hold that perspective either. <laughs> I've got just as much evidence as they had, maybe more. I know the story of Jesus. 
but I can't hold that perspective. Salvation means that I am delivered from my enemies, my real enemies. I'm delivered from the forces and the circumstances that really threaten my life and threaten my relationships and threaten my eternity. As for my immediate difficulties, my salvation may not mean that those difficulties go away. In fact, some of those difficulties aren't real threats to me, plus God will use those difficulties to accomplish his purposes for me. But I, ultimately, I know I am being saved. I'm being completely delivered from all those forces and all those tendencies and all those enemies who are really threatening me. My sin, my fear, the power of my death to separate me from my God. So what happens when I'm saved? First of all, God is glorified in my life. Secondly, I'm delivered from my enemies. And third, the final outcome of salvation is that I put my trust in him. So now I want to read the very last paragraph of this entire story, this account, Exodus 14, 29 through 31, and we'll wrap this up. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground in a wall of water, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. They put their trust in him. And this is what happens when we are saved. We put our trust in him. And this is so critically important to genuine salvation that I think we should talk about it just for a second, what this means. What does it mean to put our trust in him? In answering that question, it's helpful for us to look at what happened to these ancient Israelites because unfortunately for them, their trust in God did not stick. Not for many of them. They waffled and grumbled and questioned and ultimately decided not to follow through on going into the promised land, and God judged them for it. So while they were saved from the mighty hand of the Egyptian army, many of them were not saved from their real enemies. Their sin, their fears, ultimately the power of their death to separate them from their God. For many of them, their experience of God was profound, but it did not produce genuine salvation. Pause. If you've drifted, let me say that again. For many of them, their experience of God was profound, but it did not produce genuine salvation. This is one of the reasons that the first disciples of Jesus recognized that Jesus was even greater than Moses. Because Jesus accomplished full and final salvation for all those who put their trust in him. We are saved from our real enemies if we put our trust in Jesus. In fact, our ultimate enemy, death, actually accomplishes our, accomplishes our full salvation. Instead of separating us, our death is what completely unites us with our God. The thing that is our greatest fear and greatest enemy actually delivers our ultimate salvation. But for many of these Israelites, they did not experience full and genuine salvation. All right, let's go back to Jonathan Edwards for a minute. Because this recognition that 
an encounter with God may not produce a genuine salvation experience. That's what drove the thinking of Jonathan Edwards as he responded to the after effects of the first great awakening. Because Edwards noticed over time that many people seem to experience something from revival preaching. And they seem to live for a short time in the afterglow of whatever it was that they experienced. But then it died off. Their, their lives did not give glory to God. Their, their trust faded. They slipped away from fellowship. They, they ceased all religious activity. They simply returned to their old lives. Some of you have known people like that. Some of you have been people like that at points in your life. <laughs> Some of us have been people like that at points in our lives. Or, in other cases, their salvation experience didn't carry through their whole lives. In other words, they were, what, who they were on Tuesday didn't match the wild exuberance of who they were on Sundays. They might give glory to God with their lips on Sunday, but they didn't give glory to God with their lives on Wednesday. Some of us have also been like that. After observing this, some of the preachers of the Great Awakening in America, you may have heard this kind of language before. This is where it came from. Some of, the, some of these preachers began to make a distinction between what they called faith and saving faith, or trust and saving trust. Saving trust being the kind that genuinely resulted in salvation. Genuinely resulted in a real transformative experience with God. Listen, a huge majority of people who live in America, immigrants, native-born, a huge majority, say they believe in God. And in that sense, they have faith. But is it saving faith? Is it genuine is it saving trust? I know some of you, some of us, gave up on religion at some point in your life. But was it genuine religion? Was it saving religion that you gave up on? So when we are saved, we put our trust in him. That's this third point we're making. And before we end, let's ask really quickly what what is that trust? Let's dig into that for just a second. We put our trust in him. What does that mean? We'll just say two things about it, and then we'll end. First of all, this trust is a whole life willful decision. It's not an emotional experience, as we've already alluded. It is a willful whole life decision. It's not an observation. It's not an intellectual assent to doctrine. Oh, I yeah, oh, I believe in God. It's not a profound idea. It's a, it's a whole life, willful decision. I've used this analogy a number of times here at Gateway, but let me, let me do it again quickly. Let's imagine that we stretch a tightrope from here to the back wall, and let's imagine instead of the floor, you are now in the Grand Canyon. We're going to go all the way across the Grand Canyon, and I am a tightrope walker and a magician. You are gathered here uh, to observe me, and I look at you and I say, how many of you think I can walk across this tightrope all the way across the Grand Canyon? And there are a few gasps. A couple of people go, yay, we're a little terrified because it's very windy. You've never seen me perform before. And I miraculously walk all the way across the canyon and back, and I am met by wild applause now. Oh, you can't believe it. You're stunned. 
You've just, you've just experienced my amazingness. Now I say to you, how many of you think that I can ride a bicycle across the Grand Canyon and, and back? And a few more of you now are, this guy is pretty amazing. Still, you're terrified. A bicycle, that challenges your balance even more. I don't know. And you watch me hop on a bike and ride across the, the Grand Canyon and come back, and I make it back. And now, oh, unanimous eruption. You have all experienced my amazingness. You trust that I'm pretty amazing. You trust that I'm pretty amazing. You have faith that I'm amazing. How many of you think that I can ride this bicycle all the way across the Grand Canyon and back with a, a, a sack of sand on the front of it that weighs as much as a human being? Yes, you're all believers now. And I throw the sack on my, my bike and I ride across and I come back and I'm met with wild applause and embraces and you're throwing flowers and money at me. And now I say, how many of you think that I can ride across the Grand Canyon and back with an actual human sitting in, in the front of the bike and you all, you're believers, you all, yes, okay, who will get on the bike? That's biblical faith. That's saving faith. Willful, whole life decision. I'm in. It's not observation and an intellectual assent to an idea. It is a willful, whole life decision. The second thing that saving faith is treasuring Jesus, treasuring him above all things, leaving all others, him alone, wanting him as the first priority in your life, or let's be honest, at times, wanting to want him. <laughs> you're distracted, you're busy, you don't treasure him, but there's something in you that you want. You treasure treasuring him. It's not sentimentality. It's not tears in your eyes when you hear the sweet Christmas story. It's not, it's not being moved emotionally at the moving testimony to three weeks ago. It is loving him with all our heart, all of our mind, and all of our strength. A whole life, willful decision, and treasuring him above all things. That's saving trust. What happens when we are saved? We give glory to God. We are delivered from our enemies, and we put our trust in him. If you have had a genuine experience with God, and I know many of your stories, you have. Let me remind you this morning, this is what's happening to you. <laughs> your life is giving glory to God. I'm not telling you what ought to be true. I'm telling you what is true. Sometimes without you realizing it, you give glory to God. And you are being saved from your real enemies. Your sins are being forgiven and cleansed so that you are more and more capable of loving those around you and loving him. Your current trials are going to unwind in a way that accomplishes your good and his glory. And even your greatest trial, your death, will accomplish your ultimate victory and salvation. You are being saved. Finally, you are growing in your trust of him, and that trust is strengthening your heart and your mind increasingly over time. This is what is happening to us, and we praise God for it. 
However, if you have not had a genuine encounter with God, if you have not been saved, maybe you've recognized this morning that you have not been saved, I want to ask, what are you waiting for? Cry out to him today. This is waiting for you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and let's close in prayer. Lord God, you are uh, mighty to save. And our hearts today are full of praise because of what you have done on our behalf for us. We're so thankful. We thank you that you are delivering us from our, from our real and ultimate enemies. We thank you that uh, you have worked in us in such a way that our lives give glory to you. Oh, it's you that's doing all of this. We see it. We're thankful, Lord, that you are building our trust muscle. And increasingly, we're, we're leaning into you with everything that we are. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.